0: You are listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agionet slash talks.
1: As we all know, the Canadian art world is a small place and often somewhat territorial when it comes to major figures like Goodwin. All this is to say I am not and never have been a Betty Goodwin scholar. Once invited to do this talk, my immediate thoughts went to the obvious person to ask, Jessica Bradley. Bradley has worked closely with and has repeatedly written beautifully on Betty Goodwin over the years. And she was instrumental along with Matthew Teitelbaum, the AGO's director, in the Goodwin donation coming to the AGO. Bradley's work with Goodwin and his very important work that generally remains invisible and unacknowledged in the discourse of contemporary art, is the result of a long conversation that takes place over the life of an artist. And it is one that curators are privileged to have with certain artists in their careers. So back to the invitation. Okay, I thought, um, I knew Betty, though not well. And honestly, her work was not on my mind at the moment, even if it had been the subject of the first catalog essay I had ever wrote, written. That was back in 1990. I had become interested in contemporary art only a few years earlier. I remember in the course of my research visiting her at her home studio and interviewing her there. At the time, I was nervous and extremely intimidated by her. And in retrospect, this was probably the last thing Betty wanted me to feel. I was also very impressed, well blown away, by the beauty of her home and studio. Up to that moment, I'd only been in a few professional artist studios, and they were mostly industrial buildings in old Montreal or around the city of Montreal. Betty's was sublime in comparison to those, which were mostly in industrial spaces in Montreal. Um, Hers was actually built by an architect and was in her home. And I remember most the quality of light, which was sublime. So when this question was being asked to write, write this paper, come and give this paper, the kind of visit in her studio came to mind. Anyway, after a brief period, I thought, I'll accept the AGO's invitation, I'll, I'll do this. Um, and I'm, I'm actually really pleased I did it, because it sort of allows me to re- revisit uh, something, something that I, I was once quite involved with or, or knew about. And it's just brought back various various things to mind. I'm just going to move forward. When I think back to that moment in Goodwin's studio, the photographer Jeffrey James' work also always comes to mind. He was a close friend of Goodwin's and took some wonderful shots in her studio. Um, I'm gonna go through several of them now. I have, I had here uh, a pointer. So yeah, just you can see the kind of various kinds of objects that interested her. Um, and every, every artist's studio or home that you go to, you'll see the kinds of things that influence and inspire them. So here, a dead bird on this kind of uh, Jaws-like tool, so kind of the the fragile against the strong, which I think is a repeated theme in Goodwin's work. Um, Again, just uh, these are kind of transformer heads, I think, industrial objects. So she had industrial objects around her home and studio, tools of the artist. Everything, as this photograph depicts, everything is beautifully, beautifully sort of organized and... uh, portrayed by Jeffrey Again, what I like about this particular picture that Jeffrey took is just the notebooks, which are really, or sketchbooks, which are really the subject, I think, the deep subject of the exhibition here at the AGO. The artist's tools, um, various photographs of her own work, probably in various shows or in uh, various setups in the studio, all her pens, um, books that she's looking at, um, maybe being inspired by... Um, this one. yeah, this is uh, jeffrey 's favorite photograph, and Jeffrey really likes this one because uh, when the photograph is printed, the size of the ruler is is actually to scale in real life. Um, why, why I like this one myself is just the tools of the artist again: the pot of ink, the pen, a kind of uh, acupuncturist ear, which um, you know might link her her work to Joseph Boy's alternative medicine, etc. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, she loved to read, so Rilke's selected poems. Um, this little note to self uh, to to read. I think it's a. Uh, last poems of Paul Chalan, and again, a kind of very shaky handwriting that you see uh, that was, you know, characteristic of her, but also as a kind of older person uh, just thinking about that change in handwriting uh, which starts to happen. So beautiful photo. Um, <clears throat> so my talk, my talk is uh, titled Betty Goodwin, Why Now? So who is Betty Goodwin? And why are we talking about her work now? And how can we look at her work anew? My perspective this evening will be that of a curator of contemporary art. Not an art historian or art critic, but a curator. Someone who has a passion, love and respect for the material they work with. As well as, hopefully, a critical attitude. So who is Betty gurun I have chosen to speak about the public artist, not the very private person. Goodwin was born in March 19th, 1923, in Montreal and passed away there December 1st, in 2008. She would have been 87 if she were alive today. Goodwin, it seems, did not live up to the first syllable of her name. She was not very good at school, and by extension, she was largely a self-taught artist. During the 50s, 50s and 60s, she exhibited regularly. Her work consisted of drawings, prints, paintings of street scenes, Still lifes, Animals. And she, she made all these shows, but they had they had little consequence. Matthew Teitelbaum has written well about this period in the AGO's last catalogue written on Goodwin, uh, should you be or published on Goodwin, should you be interested. In nineteen sixty eight, when she was in her mid forties, the artist attended Sir George Williams University, now Concordia University, and studied printmaking with Yves Gaucher, the influential and important Montreal, Montreal abstract painter and printmaker. Shortly thereafter, in 1972, she had a significant breakthrough. She won, out of 300 contestants, the Arts Council of Great Britain Prize for this work called Shirt 4 at the Third British International Print Biennial at the Bradford City Art Galleries and Museums. Um, This is a kind of x-ray-like, soft ground etching. It has a kind of haunting presence, a sort of palpable reality. Um, Betty Goodwin at this time uh, was experimenting a lot uh, with clothing and with with soft ground etching. Um, Other competitors had the following last names, Johns, Stella, and Rauschenberg. As curator Rosemary Tavell states, this was the most significant validation she had received after nearly 20 years of printmaking. So at the time, Goodwin was experimenting with objects such as gloves, vests, and packages in order to make soft ground etchings, drawings, and even sculptures. I think this moment of making is important in Goodwin's oeuvre, as I believe she enters her more mature phase and finds her subject. At this time, it's interesting to note, she is also a huge fan of Joseph Beuys, the German artist. In 1972, she makes a work, Vest for Beuys. They both share a love of the material and are willing to work in the media required for the project at hand. Boys, of course, is known for his signature many-pocketed vest that you can see here. And so so it's an obvious reference uh, to his persona here. But beyond this, Goodwin is interested in the model Boys provides as an artist working resolutely outside the vocabulary, whether pop, minimal, or conceptual, of American art. An art that is rather turned this is Joseph boys, if you like. It's an art that is rather turned toward the human body, its fragility, and its place in history. I just thought I'd show a few works by Boyce. This is a, a work by him poster, but a uh, few kind of artworks. So this is called Backrest for a Fine-Limbed Person Hair Type of the 20th Century A.D. It's from 1972, and it's based on a plaster cast that's used to treat a child with uh, spinal disorders, but it also refers to a uh, kind of fertility through... Uh, uh, Joseph Boys' reference to the hair in the title, which is an ancient symbol of fertility, um, I just th- I thought to show these because I think the materiality of Boys is something that uh, Betty Goodwin Betty Goodwin shares. Um, it's another work called Eurasia Siber- Siberian Symphony, 1963 from 1966, and all the objects that you see here are uh, from a performance uh, that Beuys uh, did in Berlin, and so you have the kind of hair, uh, you have. Um, you have uh, what are the kinds of things like some felt, some fat. You can see the fat, yellow fat down the bottom, these various poles, etc. Um, it is interesting to note one of Boys' self-assigned roles was that of healer. And he often spoke of a huge social wound that required repair. He was probably speaking to the, the state of Western culture, but he must also have been thinking about Germany's moral devastation with respect to World War II. Boyce's art, uh, art offered both poetic descriptions of the injury and prescriptions of, for a cure and invokes te- healing techniques, both physical and spiritual. So there was a brief introduction to Goodwin's works to Goodwin's work in terms of finding her place as an artist, but a more central question is why are we talking about her work now? Um, this is figure uh, with a steel bar, and so it's a drawing um, again on geofilm, and the steel the steel bar is here. The rest of the the work is drawn. So the the kind of material for drawing is graphite, oil stick, tar pastel and wash on Geofilm. I think it's just very interesting to always know how artists are making things, and you know, you can begin to imagine a technique where there's a lot of kind of smudging and erasing going on, a lot of kind of messy messy work, um, and a kind of collage sensibility bringing in this kind of found piece of steel, or perhaps a piece of steel that she has made, made especially for the drawing. Um, So, yeah, why are we looking at Betty Goodwin's work now? There are, of course, several answers to this question, and the first might be, why not? Betty Goodwin is an important Canadian artist. Okay, so Betty Goodwin's an important Canadian artist. What does this mean? And how, how how does an artist become important? Firstly, it means that her work is singular and stands out above the rest. In her lifetime, Goodwin became known and respected for her paintings, prints, drawings, sculptures and installations. However, it is her drawing that really distinguishes her as an artist. What else makes a Canadian artist important, significant and different from the rest? One way to answer this question is to look look at both critical and curatorial response, meaning exhibitions and their attendant curators and institutions, as well as the critical reception of the artist in the press and elsewhere, the quality and type of texts produced, whether they be in newspapers, catalogs, scholarly journals, etc. In this sense, Betty Goodwin is one of the few contemporary women artists to have had significant exhibitions in this country's major institutions, exhibitions organized by important Canadian curators that received serious reception by the country's art critics and other interested professionals and the public. As well, her work has been collected by all the major institutions in the country. The Art Gallery of Ontario, the Musée de Beaux-Arts, the Musée d'Art Contemporain Montreal, the Vancouver Art Gallery, and of course, the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. So what I thought we could do is just look together at uh, her career through her major exhibitions. So, in 1976, she has her first major exhibition at the Musée d'Art Contemporain Montreal, where she exhibited the Tarpaulin series, series. Earlier in the 70s, Goodwin had been printing images of parcels and her gaze moved to parceled trucks covered with tarpaulins for a series of photo engravings. So this is Tarpaulin number 4 from 1975. It's 13 feet by 4 feet. These tarpaulins are actually found objects and they're kind of, you can talk about them as kind of wounded if you like when she finds them. So there are lots of tears uh, tears on them that have been repaired uh, prior to when she bought them. Um, She washed all of these tarpaulins, and she applied gesso and oil stick uh, to the surfaces of them, and then she refolded them and kind of found a way to use them to kind of reappropriate, kind of repair, if you like, repair, kind of heal these objects. And always she plays with the ropes and the kind of opening, if you like, where the, the kind of fold, folds occur. So these are the ropes that are used to to kind of attach the tarpaulin to the truck. Very, I don't know if anyone's ever ever seen one. There's one here at the AGO right now. They're very beautiful. Um, they're some of my favorite works uh, by Goodwin. Um and yeah, it's always a, a pleasure to see when I think is some of the strongest uh contemporary work we have in our museum collections. Um so I'll just show you another one just so you can see the variation. So this is Tarpaulin number five from 1975. I would also argue that these objects introduce a new sense of scale into Goodwin's two-dimensional works, a scale that is bigger and less domestic. Perhaps one might say a contemporary sense of scale. So I do think these—these these kind of this work with the tarpaulins, tarpaulins opens up this kind of space to work on paper, to work on big sheets of paper or vellum or geofilm or whatever you want to call it. In 1987 curator Yolande Racine of the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts organized Betty Goodwin works from 1971 to 87. 1987 the traveled to the Art Gallery of Ontario and the Vancouver Art Gallery. The exhibition included a triptych made for Pierre Taberge's exhibition O Canada in Berlin in 1982. So here's uh, one image of that particular work. So it's the drawings combined uh, with the steel sculptures. So you can see somebody who's starting to work in uh, also a large-scale steel sculpture. Central to this exhibition would be Goodwin's swimmer series of drawings from the 80s. Um, I was actually living in Montreal at that time period, and uh, Betty Goodwin was, a, was sort of becoming a celebrity in, in the kind of art world that I inhabited. And, you know, whenever you'd go to an opening and would see her, I was very young, probably 20, 24 or so, but, you know, someone would point her out, and it would be sort of amazing that you were in her presence. She's um, very... Uh, a uh, visible person, kind of shock. The, the the black and white photograph doesn't show that, but kind of shock of black hair. Very tall, kind of a, a regal, a regal woman. Um, so I just want to show you one of the swimmers, which were really significant. Uh, I showed at the beginning, but I think just beautiful works. Um, This is another swimmer uh, from that period made roughly in the same way. Um, After this also came a whole series of drawings uh, by Goodwin. I just wanted to read some of the titles so you can get a sense of some of the ideas she's thinking about. So one title is So Certain I Was a Horse. Another was Red Sea. Do you know how long it takes for any one voice to reach another? Moving Towards Fire. Il y a certainement quelqu'un qui m'a... Two uh, A comes from a, a line from a po- uh, poet, by a uh, line from a poem. Uh, the poet is Annie A uh, carbon also from 1986. I'll come back to these titles later. I just wanted to read them out, but they're works that come after the summer series. So this is a work called Carbon One from 1986. It's 38 by 60 inches. It's charcoal, powder, wax, and oil pastel on tra- something called Transpagra. What stood out with these drawings, and what still does, is the focus on the body. Goodwin, by now, had developed a very distinct voice, where drawing was central to her practice. In curator Yolande Racine's words, vulnerability, the struggle for survival, violence and pain, are all expressed with sincerity and simplicity in these bruised bodies. And the technique, these large drawings, they are non-conventional, and built up in layers of paper and vellum and linseed oil on paper. The figures are often drawn with oil stick. Strangely, these drawings are often violent in content, yet are very seductive somehow. So there's always this kind of push and pull with them. Um, How she's using the medium sort of draws you in, and then you start to realize this is actually quite a horrific image. We're looking at a a body, a black kind of body. You want to go further with that. Could be burned. Um, The head is... uh, has, has, has uh, been disconnected from the body, or this is a, it's, the head belongs to another body, this is a headless, a headless torso of some sort. Um, so you start to think about what you're looking at, and um, it's, it's, it can be quite disturbing at times. Goodwin was also included, included in three major presentations at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. She was one of two women artists, the other being Mia Westerland out of 19 artists or collaborations, so General Idea and Anything Company were also included in this show, although I couldn't find any, any mention of the woman who was part of Anything Company, Ingrid Baxter. Her name doesn't... It may surface once or twice in the catalogue, but it seems that she's not really that present. Anything Company split up after a period of time. So out of 19 artists in a show that takes place at the National Gallery, out of 19 artists, there are two women, as far as I can discern. In this group exhibition uh, called Pluralities, Coordinated by Jessica Bradley in 1980, there were four curators, and Chantal Pomprien selected Goodwin. Chantal Pomprien, for those who know, was uh, the editor of *Parachute*, a very important Canadian magazine that no longer exists. Canadian art magazine that no longer exists. Um, so Betty Goodwin made an installation titled *Passage in a Red Field*. Jessica Bradley also organized Betty Goodwin's *Signs of Life* in 1996. This was a survey of Goodwin's works from the early mid '90s and focused on *Memoir de Corps* and the *Nerve* series. Um, This is one of the drawings from the *Nerve* series. So you have kind of reds and blues used kind of under this black ground, kind of erased. Um, There's a sense of kind of roots coming into the ground. A kind of again suggestion of a body on that surface that's being perhaps pushed up. Um, Very kind of moody, sort of morbid, morbid drawings. The last major exhibition at the National Gallery of Canada would be Rosemary Tavelle's 2002 Prints of Betty Goodwin, which is a thorough and solid examination and exploration of Betty Goodwin's use of the print medium throughout her entire career. I was working at the National Gallery when the show opened and when Rosemary was working with, uh, with Betty, and she was, she was very weak at that time. So, um, kind of sad to see, but people grow old. Um, in addition to Passage in a Red Field, which I mentioned above, Goodwin also made several other site specific installations. This is the Montana Street project from 1979. And so it's a room inside a room, uh, and there's this kind of passageway that's been lined with clay. And at certain points in the day, when the light struck the clay, you'd have very beautiful, <clears throat> very, very beautiful light effects. Um, one of my favorite works by Goodwin. One of my favorite works by Goodwin is Moving Towards Fire. Um, the installation she made for Aurora Borealis in 1985. Aurora Borealis is in my estimation, or is in my estimation, the last great group exhibition of Canadian artists. If someone wants to take this up with me later, uh, they should feel free to do so. I, I got to go to this exhibition, and I think it's one of the things that actually really, really turned me on to contemporary art. It was, it was absolutely stunning. Um, I was amazed and perhaps confounded by most of the work in the exhibition. Up to that point, I had never seen a contemporary large-scale drawing made for the space of exhibition. It was completely new for me. So it's Betty Goodwin's piece, moving towards fire, a kind of drawing installation. And um, <clears throat> this particular uh, exhibition took place in is a Plaster Park, which was a shopping mall, a new shopping mall, on Park Avenue in Montreal, just above Sherbrooke Street. And you kind of wandered around in this basement, and artists had these kind of, I guess, what would be stores, if you like, should the place have been developed or being used. So Betty Goodwin had uh, several walls down there. You can see this beautiful figurative drawing, and uh, kind of build up of the kind of red kind of, oil, I guess probably red oil stick on the uh, heating ducts up here or the the ducts, and kind of almost like uh, almost like two legs meeting, perhaps. And again, a kind of close up on that on that figure. You can see a kind of you think about it moving towards figure and this body uh, moving towards fire. This this body perhaps almost exploding. And there's actually a little kind of figure coming out of the mouth, uh, with a little head. Um. And again, just another one of the walls. So the, these kind of heating ducts become incorporated into the into the drawing. Goodwin's work was dismantled. Uh, one piece went, I just go back again, yeah. Goodwin's work was dismantled, and uh, One piece went to Claude Gosselin, who's one of the organizers of uh, that particular exhibition of Aurélibriales. And Rene Blouin, who's the dealer in Montreal, some of you may know, was Betty Goodwin's dealer in Montreal, uh, has kept the head, and in fact, has that, the head in his dining room still. And so whenever he sits down to eat, he's, he's with this drawing because it's it's made it's made for the space, so the idea was to kind of remove some rock and to keep keep some aspect I just you know it's funny when I was looking at it this time i I just sent a note to Renee about it because i was I was curious if anyone had kept any of it because it was such a beautiful work so nice to find that out that there's some of it still surviving um I was recently talking to the Canadian artist Liz Magor uh, who was also in the exhibition and she told me how social Goodwin's experience was. She said all kinds of people were dropping by to say hi to Betty. Magor was having a much lonelier time of it. Um, this is an image of Liz Magor's work and in fact it's the first work of contemporary art I ever wrote on. It's the one that, that pulled me in um, or maybe my teacher told me I had to write on it. I can't quite remember but it's a work called production and so the newspapers are transformed into bricks, kind of paper mache bricks using this machine here um, and it's now in the collection of the National Gallery and I, I had again the privilege of installing it uh, at the National Gallery several times when I worked there. Um, you can also see the bricks going up the wall which Maegor also made so she she was hard at work probably from I don't know if she was living in Ontario actually probably living in Ontario but maybe I guess Betty Goodwin had had all her friends around dropping by to see her. Um, In the spirit of showing the variety of Goodwin's work, so this is one of the public sculptures that she made, it's called Riverbed from 1977, and you can see very much, it it looks very much like a bed, but also kind of plays on a geographic, or geological formation, I'm sorry, of a kind of riverbed, so the bed kind of falls apart in segments. A kind of minimalist minimalist sculpture, if you like. the bed is a reoccurring image in Goodwin's oeuvre. This piece probably speak, This piece speaks to the body, sexuality, and possibly dreams, intertwined with the uh, natural natural setting, the setting of nature. The, and the piece is called uh, River Peace, Sorry, not River Bed. Or maybe maybe it is called River Bed. Some of the works, you know, you're looking at catalogs, and uh, the works change their title. So I think it's actually River Bed in some catalogs, and River Peace in others. Another marker of Goodwin's stature would be her international profile or the number of exhibitions she took part in outside the country. Two highlights of her career would be her representation of Canada at the 1989 Sao Paulo Biennale, where she exhibited uh, steel notes, her steel notes. And these are, in critic George Bergardi's work, like signposts in a hostile terrain. The red text suggests danger and are borrowed from Primo Levi and Elie Wiesel two Jewish writers and two survivors of the Holocaust. And here I want to speak about Goodwin's Jewish identity. In this way, her exploration of the body is not simply universal, but marked by the traumatic experiences of the 20th century. And I think in, in this way, too, is, uh, this is something that was of deep interest to Joseph Boyce and probably a reason why she gravitated towards uh, his work. I just want to show you another one of the steel notes. So just also to say, these are two large, two large magnets that have been attached to the, to the steel, which again has been rubbed with oil, oil stick and other things, so the writing former human beings... These would be two magnets, and these would be these kind of magnetic shavings. They're very kind of bodily-looking works, but also very harsh. It almost feels like body, body fragments and the kind of sense of ashes or burning of bodies, uh, whatever. So, former human beings. Very dark work. So another one, It is Forbidden to Print. Uh, these would be magnets again and more kind of ferret, ferrite shavings, I guess. These aren't very big, so uh, they're probably about you know t- maybe twice as big as a sheet, but they're, they're, they're small, kind of ta- what I would call tablet-sized works. Another work uh, from that period called Room, uh, 1988, and again, uh, quite... quite uh, quite dark, foreboding uh, space, like you have this kind of suggesting kind of gas coming in, water coming out, sewage coming out, I don't know, it's kind of plumbing pipes. It's a very kind of dark uh, structure, architectural structure. Um, so, so she showed this kind of work in Sao Paulo. There's a beautiful, beautiful catalogue that was produced if anybody is interested in reading about this particular period of uh, Goodwin's practice. So this is room from 1988, suggestive of a gas chamber. Um, also, I want to talk about another exhibition that took place outside of Canada. Her inclusion in Renée Clare's exhibition, Identity and Alterity, which made up the international section of the 1995 Venice Biennale, is similarly a considerable achievement. Goodwin also had very reputable dealers, and showed repeatedly with of Renée Blouin in Montreal, and Sable Castelli in Toronto, and a little later Fawbush Gallery in New York. Um, this is a book called Carbon from 1986, It's just made, it's very large. You can get a sense of the scale. Again, if you know René Blouin's gallery, uh, you know roughly what we're talking about here. Uh, The ceilings are probably somewhere between 10, 12, maybe 12, 12, 14 feet. Um, uh, So this work is made with charcoal powder, wax, oil pastel, gesso, and uh, it's all on honeycomb galvanized aluminum. I have 108 by 384 inches. a beautiful, beautiful drawing, large-scale drawing. Betty Goodwin was also the recipient of significant prizes. She won the Pre-Emile, pre-Paul-Emile Bordua in 1986, a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1988, and the Gershon Iskowitz Prize in 1995. So in looking at these major exhibitions, we get a good overview of some of the high points of Goodwin's career. We must not forget that Betty Goodwin and her audience found each other late in the artist's life. She was almost 50 when she won the International Print Prize and in her mid-50s when she exhibited the Tarpaulins in Vancouver. Think of the Canadian art world today. In 2001, I bought the first whale, uh, I don't know if any of you know the whale shapeshifter made by Brian Young and using plastic chairs. So I bought the first... um, the first whale or major sculpture shapeshifter that Brian Youngen ever made for the National Gallery of Canada when he was in his early 30s. His first significant exhibition opened at the New Museum in 2005 when he was only 35. It travelled on to the Vancouver Art Gallery, the Musée d'Art Contemporain, and Rotterdam, among other places. This example tells us we live in a very different art world today. Fame, if it happens, and it rarely does, generally is established much earlier. This is not necessarily a good thing, as it means the artist has a much longer career ahead, and few make that long journey to the end maintaining their stature. Kim Adams, Liz McGor, Michael Snow, and Jeff Wall are doing well, and there are others out there. This late fame echoes quite closely the career of French-born, but New York-based artist Louise Bourgeois, who was 72 in 1982 when she had her first major exhibition, a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art. At that time, she was only the second woman to be granted this honor. She was 88 when she conceived of the spider that is outside of the National Gallery of Canada, and over 90 when it was actually produced. Again, think of another woman who, at that age, has produced a major public artwork in Canada. I think somebody out there knows the answer, but... Um, <laughs> so just another image of carbon uh, with the lights on in the gallery. So what, what is Goodwin's subject? From this relatively quick overview of some of the artist's work, it becomes clear that her subject is the body in relation to her Jewish identity, frailty and pain, memory and loss. To quote Yolande Racine, the works of Betty Goodwin come under the heading of considerations of the human condition, the fragility of humans in their own being and in their relations with others. The curator Robert Storr, uh, who worked at the Museum of Modern Art and uh, I think now is the the, the director of the, Yale, of the Yale Art School, I think I have that right. Um, so he, he wrote about Betty Goodwin's work quite early on in the, for the Montréal, for the Musée du Beaux-Arts catalogue. The curator and artist Robert Stewart discusses her work as expressive, taking its place in the tradition of emotionally charged figurative work. You can also think of the much more politicized work of Nancy Spiro here, uh, the American artist, who spent much of her life engaged with anti-war and feminist imagery. So uh, kind of heads of heads, perhaps swinging on a kind of maypole with the American flag, Um, a more... um, sort of militaristic, anti-military kind of image. Uh, both artists, you know, worked on paper and there's a kind of delicacy that I, I think links them. I think they're, they have very separate projects, but I think, I think we can think of them together. And I think Robert Storr was thinking about Betty Goodwin when he wrote his essay. I was thinking of Nancy Sparrow in comparison to Betty Goodwin when he wrote his essay. Um, of the scenes depicted in her drawings, Storr states, these predicaments are desperate, doubled over, cramped, gagging on, or exhaling anthracite, black gusts of air, these bodies work against themselves in spastic pantomime. Their postures delineate a complete surrender to the tremors which rack and weaken them. Confronted by life-sized renderings of these full-length corporal gestures, we respond not just with empathetic terror or pity, but more keenly with an involuntary muscular sympathy, a sudden tensing of the diaphragm, a reflexive jerk of the throat, Thus, Goodwin anticipates our presence, treating us not merely as observers, but as participants as well, like the alternately slack or contorted figure hovering before our eyes. We too are treated as reactive organisms. Jessica Bradley says, Betty Goodwin's work and the way she works has reminded me of that childhood game, paper, scissors, rock, in which, through a series of hand gestures, One element triumphs over the other and the victor gets to administer a triumphant slap. It is not the inherent if harmless violence that comes to mind, but the way way that in this symbolic battle of strength and fragility, the most solid and immutable thing, the rock, can be nullified by a flimsy piece of paper. And again, I think after reading or hearing Jessica's text, you can also think back to that bird and that kind of big jaws tool that I showed you that was in her studio at the beginning. Um, Here are my own uh, youthful birds from that very first catalogue essay that I ever wrote. I thought it'd be good to bring in a little bit of me here. So, Goodwin's practice resists the sensationalism and exploitation present in the media. Her subdued tones of grey, flesh, black and sparing use of red and fleshy textures understate, yet communicate distress. In addition, neither the artworks nor the titles themselves indicate countries or isolate cases of human rights abuse. By refusing to disclose and relate specific events to her work, the artist allows each spectator to remember traumas, both personal and political. These quotes serve to give insight to Goodwin's practice, but rereading them today, I would say that while each is different, they are repetitive. And while these writers are all great to read, it is time to learn something new about Goodwin and to advance knowledge in the way that exhibitions do. So we go back to the AGO exhibition that's here, and I'm sort of curious to ask, or you know, once I was asked to do this, what are the secrets of that exhibition? What does this show tell us that's new? I want to turn my attention to the recent and I believe important display entitled Betty Goodwin Work Notes at the AGO. For those of you who have not yet seen it, the AGO presents 86 of Goodwin's sketchbooks out of 117 that have been donated. They are open and densely displayed in vitrines and on the surrounding walls and in a side room, there are some of Jeffrey James' photographs I projected earlier, as well as drawings, prints, printing plates, a later tarpaulin, and various other works. What is relevatory about this exhibition, especially with respect to curatorial types like myself, is that it gives us a first view onto Betty Goodwin's sketchbooks. She did not lend them to exhibitions, probably because she still needed to refer to... to she did not lend them to exhibitions, probably because she still needed to refer to or access them for various projects. Or, in the very least, that she she could, that the very least that she could, should she want to. There is one exception here, in 1987, she lent 10 to the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts exhibition. In other words, these notebooks have had very limited exposure. So let's, let's look at them. Along uh, the top row here, so you start to look at these three, uh, these three here. We see a series of sketches, all in different books, but roughly from the same period. And they have a strong connection to the installation Goodwin produced for moving towards fire, the Aurora Borealis installation I just showed you. Just a shot to remind you, so it kind of So here are the drawings again. You can see the shapes and forms are very similar to moving towards fire. Just want to show you the close-up of the head again. You can see the head with a kind of figure coming out or the mouth with a f- kind of figure coming out of it. I'm just gonna go back. So here's a close-up of the central figure with the head coming out. Um, and again, you can just see back and forth that what's going on in the notebooks, she's kind of conceptualizing, if you like, this moving towards fire, firework. So in this lovely sketch from the 1970s, made with a felt-tip pen and watercolor, we see Goodwin carefully working out some thoughts around a beautifully rendered vest. Using clothing to generate images, mostly prints, as I have shown, was central to her work in that time period. In what seems to be Betty Goodwin's style, there are lots of words together with the image. And again, you see that um, in the notebooks, you obviously see words around lots of language. Um, The following quote that you see here is uh, from the sculptor, pop sculptor, pop artist, uh, Clay Oldenburg. As time goes on, and the things they represent vanish from daily use, their purely formal character will be more evident. Time will undress them. The other texts uh, that are are on, on the drawing here suggest the potential to transform the vest. We see the words twisted and hardened. We also see her devising a method to display the item of clothing, which she ultimately uses for the Tarpaulin series. So this kind of bar, if you like, up here. Kind of go back to one of the one of the tarpaulins. So it's the the way she she decides to show them. <clears throat> this is probably a page taken from uh, the Steel Notes catalog, or sorry, from the. It's a page taken from the Steel Notes catalogue, but it probably represents two pages uh, from one of her notebooks. And we can see the sketch for what likely becomes the future work, Rooms, which I showed you a little while ago. And you can see Betty Goodwin's notations, so talking about kind of elegant light, everything is both hyper-real and uh, I think it says unreal, uh, so immediate uh, that nothing else exists. It goes on. But you see this kind of image making and uh, this writing and this kind of resorting, resorting to language. Just show you room again, so you can just see the sketch and the, the work itself. Some more of uh, Goodwin's sketchbooks, and again, I think you can see the relationship uh, to, to the kind of swimmer series, so the figure, figure swimming the kind of body in the water. Um, just show you the swimmer's drawings again. So again, this kind of figure up here, seems sort of further away. I hope you're not too bored with this old-school method of looking, compare, and contrast. It is important here if we wish to establish new ways of thinking about Goodwin's practice. If this exhibition does anything, it offers us an opportunity to reassess Goodwin's practice. As I have shown, her work is often understood to be expressive, interpreted with respect to her Jewish identity, human frailty, the impossibility of communication, memory, and the body, and loss, a gloomy set of narratives. Sorry, just gonna. In light of the slideshow, the exhibition affords us a slightly different view on to the artist's work. I would like to challenge the notion that she is an expressionist artist. The notebooks show how much care, thought, and precision go into making these drawings. Characteristics that align Goodwin's later, later work more with conceptual art practice. We see her future work being conceptualized. We see the use of text and the importance of it throughout her practice. While she generates many different kinds of work, language and text is very important to each work's foundation and formation, as we see in the exhibition. I want to make it clear that I'm not claiming Goodwin as a conceptual artist, but I do think she is perhaps more conceptual than we might have previously thought. There's something else to learn from these sketchbooks. Anyone researching Goodwin, in a fairly superficial way, will understand she is influenced and inspired by literature. However, the sketchbooks tell us that Goodwin had a very deep connection to experimental writing and poetry. Goodwin read new writing, plays, poetry, and prose, sometimes close to the release dates. But more than that, they show that she was reading a lot of the time. So I would argue that she is a much more literary artist than we have previously given her credit for. I should say here that this is the observation of curator Georgiana I'm trying to get this name right it's just like my second time I've said it out loud tonight so, um, who unlike myself has had prolonged contact and intimate knowledge of the sketchbooks for example a text in Betty Goodwin's notebook 40 circa 1960 reads graffiti groups birth umbilical cord leaving womb hanging on to womb shock of birth warm security of womb Astride the Grave We Are Born, Dancing. Astride the Grave We Are Born is from Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot, which had its English premiere only five years earlier. Her quoting from the play in her notebook is from around 1960. It is not surprising that she would be attracted to the bleakness of the approach, the bleakness of the contemporary human condition that is Beckett's. This is something that is still very powerful for artists working today. Her involvement with Beckett is paralleled in many contemporary artists' work. I have singled out some scenes from the American artist Paul Chan's staging of Waiting for Godot in New Orleans. I think he did that about two years ago, so the idea that the government, very few people had come in to kind of help the people in New Orleans. He staged he staged this play and uh, formed a kind of new community through the staging of the play in New Orleans, and I, I've been fascinated by the work. He did it outside, and uh, I've been fascinated by the work for a while and I was just looking at documents of it and I just thought they, they spoke to Betty Goodwin's work as well that kind of, you know, the body lying there uh, on the street So the desolate and desperation visible in these shots re- resonated with the work of Goodwin's In the artist's notebook 107 circa 1991, the left page reads, the tearing of a heart S. Plath The cry took its place among the elements The phrase is from the poem Morning Song by Sylvia Plath and becomes the title of the tarpaulin work that is on display in the AGO's galleries. Again, there are titles of works that quote Artaud and others. So, so certain I was a horse is from Artaud. Do you know how long it takes for any one voice to reach another? A poet, Caroline Fourche. Il y a certainement quelqu'un qui ma is tué, as I spoke of earlier. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize uh, these titles with respect to their literary origins. The third, and final show, the, the third and final thought that this show brings forward is a, new con- is a new context with respect to Goodwin's work. As with almost every exhibition, curators are experimenting, testing hypotheses, and writing new histories. It is often overlooked, but every exhibition hopefully is a curatorial enunciation, a statement of something that has not been said before. By bringing together Agnes Martin, Eva Hesse, and Betty Goodwin, with respect to their working processes, we see each of these artists in a new light. We see three women, roughly of the generation of post-minimalism, working across multiple media. Typically, we see Goodwin as an expressive and figurative artist, and this pulls us away from expression and figuration towards the relatively conceptual experimentation that was at the root of her practice. To wrap up, I would like to review the three ways in which this exhibition has been productive. So I believe that it aligns Goodwin's practice with a more conceptual way of working. I think we see through uh, Georgiana's research that Goodwin is a more literary artist than we've ever conceived of her before. And again, we also see Goodwin in a new context so that we highlight her experimental process in relationship to Agnes Martin and Neva Hesse. So that's the end of my talk and I wanna thank you very much for for being patient and for listening to me. Um, I think uh, it is it is uh the idea now that we will open the floor up to questions. Um, I'm a little bit deaf, I should warn you, and I may not I may have some trouble hearing your question, and if so, Julian uh, is going to translate a little bit to help me so
2: I understand that uh, Goodwin's son died or killed himself. I can't remember which, and I wondered how much you think. Uh, that in influenced what Again,
1: again, she in a sense, did. I think I think that's a very personal question, and I I, I would say that you know um, anybody losing a child uh, would feel um, incredible sad. I think it's one of the hardest things that parents um, ever face, and I. I don't really know about Betty's uh, immediate experience. I imagine it was a very devastating um, devastating uh, experience for her, and I, I think there were other devastating experiences yeah. in her life. Um, I could choose to talk about those things, but I felt that those are private things, and that's maybe for the Vanity Fair article or for some other, other yeah. book, but it's, it's not stuff that I'm going to address, because I think those are very private, private yeah. things. I, I don't really know what her experience was. I can only imagine it like any yeah. outsider.
3: Well, I...
2: I differ, from uh, my point of view is different than yours. I think it had a great deal to do with her later work. Thank you.
3: Hi, I just want to add to that uh, question. Um, Does, and perhaps Georgiane if she's here can answer if 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 you don't have the answer, do the notebooks reveal or show or indicate this terrible event in in Betty Goodwin's life.
1: What do the notebooks? Sorry, it's just hard for me to follow. What do the notebooks?
2: Did the notebooks show this event in her life?
1: The is death. It, is it revealed? The death of yeah. the son. Um, I'm not sure. Again, that's something that um yeah, Georgiana. She's had a much. You know, I haven't been able to sit and uh, read all of them. I think Georgiana's had the privilege to be able to hold them in her hands and look through every single one of them. So, yeah, sure. Is, is she?
3: I tend to agree with Kitty that uh, these are very private events. Um, however, I understand how this field suddenly becomes open, and um, as research, be- the research actually becomes so much more accessible because she actually bequeathed her 117 notebooks to a public archive without any restrictions on the notebooks. Um, to answer specifically, there, uh, the well, actually, to answer gener- in the general first, the notebooks very often function as diaristic. So there is a lot of very private and intimate material, and it has a lot to do with her struggles of being an artist, um, including, for example, a meeting that she has with Nicola Saroda that was very, very frustrating. <laughs> so there there's lots of things like that, and there's mentions of of Paul, her son um, however, uh, I have not come across anything specific that deals uh with the death specifically Thank you any more questions okay. completely uh, unrelated to the previous question, but uh Coming out of the, uh, the photograph that's up on the screen right now, um, I guess this is probably a question for Georgiana since you've had the opportunity to look at the notebooks in detail, but if Kitty uh, has a comment as well. Uh, I'm curious about uh, whether uh, Betty Goodwin made any use of Paul salon's uh, writing in any of the notebooks. <laughs>
1: Curious if, if, if she made any use of... Paul Salon's writing in the um, notebooks. Again, again that's, a, that's another kind of intimate question which you'd have to speak with Georgiana about. Um, I, I came across that in the, uh, in the photograph, and I think there may be mention of him in various catalogs and such, so uh, possibly yes, but again, I don't, I don't uh, possess that knowledge. Georgiana? Wait... <laughs> I'm going to get the bin <laughs>
3: um, there, I'll just tell you a very funny incident when we were looking through one of the notebooks and uh, there's a piece that's on permanent display in Montreal um, um, in the corridor there's an ear then there's a text on the floor and um, she, she quotes from it or she's writing in her notebook as she's preparing her notes as to why this would be a really good installation in Montreal. And in brackets, she actually writes um, Levy, as though that's the, the quote comes from him, but actually the quote comes from Eli Wiesel. So sometimes what's interesting about her making notations, they're very personal and they're for her, um, that sometimes it's not always accurate.
1: <laughs> I'm just thinking there are these great programs you see on the internet now um, uh, for example, this weekend, I was at a conference, and uh, we were all talking about this one catalog art catalog that now costs about five thousand dollars it 's a rare book from the 70s and there 's actually an internet uh, kind of YouTube video that shows you every page of, of the of the catalog so you can actually view it uh, kind of from a distance and maybe it would be a nice project for some of these books to to be made visible in such a way on the internet should that be possible It seems there 's deep curiosity <laughs> with respect to to their contents.
2: You spoke very strongly about the tarpaulins, which I too love. Yes, and and you made you know made a very bold statement about the value of them in your eyes. Do you mind talking to me a little bit more about the tarpaulins,
1: about those works in yeah. particular? I guess in a way, you know, they're they're um, when when you come across them in a in a space, you know, you you pretty much I think. Pretty much everybody. You don't need to have an experience of, with art to know what they are. You know that they're tarpaulins or these things that are on trucks, and you know they're very everyday objects. So you know, should you be driving on the highway, uh, you would be bound to pass a truck that might have one on them. You might possess one yourself. Um, uh, there's something about the ordinary everydayness of them that is transformed in her hands, and um, they become very powerful. Uh, you know, they're kind of minimalist minimalist artworks, um, but they have these. They retain these histories of their former use, so you know the sewn on patches, the stains, uh, the things that Betty Goodwin has also added, so she kind of gives them gives them a new pattern of history uh, with her own hand and um they 're kind of they 're very minimal um, they 're in a way she 's taken something that in a way is kind of almost nothing every day transformed it into this kind of beautiful almost minimalist painting and uh, every time I see one I'm always just kind of stunned and blown away it's like if you think about it on a certain level kind of it's kind of a simple gesture kind of simple art is never kind of simple but there's something about it that she sort of managed to take these things that I, I could never imagine you know picking up a a kind of a, a, one of these harpolans and kind of rearranging it and making it into something that's just absolutely gorgeous highly seductive um the other thing about it too that, that that's different for me you know with respect to her work is that there's no there's no visible figure like she was you know early in her career she was painting drawing street scenes still lifes etc and this is a very kind of modern bold contemporary statement from an artist who came from a kind of very humble place in a way so it's something about something about those things and i i think also the fact that she was relatively sort of getting on when she sort of found found this found this medium this way to work, and again, you know looking at them uh, for this talk, I really felt that they were um, crucial in terms of her uh, working you know going from these very domestic domestic scale of working kind of you know, people have the first idea of what it means to be an artist and they work with small sheets of paper and they try to draw things, they try to make pictures, whatever. And, you know, Betty Goodwin moved from that kind of making into what I would say is kind of bold, contemporary, modern, if you like, way of working. So I think it's all all those things, probably more, but is that a good answer? It is a good answer, yes. And
2: that's one of the things I love about working here is you start See, you look at that and then you go home and you see all sorts of things in a completely different way. Yeah. I remember once we had a, a Rachel Whiteread mm-hmm. exhibition here and mm-hmm. I remember driving down the QEW and, and there were concrete sort of bollards and I was seeing them as art. <laughs> so, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they've given me
1: this. Just going back to the tarps. You mentioned the tarp that we have in the AGO. I mentioned the, that it. has it? the bronze heart under it. Right. Did, did, did you make... Was there a literary reference to Sylvia Plath? Yeah, so that, oh. that, that is... Um, the title of that work is directly from the Sylvia Plath poem... Uh. And again, I, I can't—I haven't memorized all of that stuff. Georgietta has it all in her mind, but it's—it's—it's a—the title for that work is definitely drawn from the line and of the Sylvia Plath poem. And that work is also a later work. It's got uh, early dates and later dates, so it's something that I think, again, as Betty Goodwin uh, matured as an artist, and I—I I didn't so much focus on what I would call late work, but um, in a lot of the late work, she starts to kind of collage metal pieces onto drawings or brings metal pieces into works even objects that look like they have a former use so a little bit like that, that tool you saw with the sparrow she fabricates things out of bronze to put beside drawings and stuff so it's, it's very much a kind of way of working uh, in her later life I don't know if Georgiana wants to say more to that but wait <laughs> <laughs> you should be up here on stage <laughs> I don't,
0: But
2: Georgiana after this you
1: she's just as far have to away down, as down. can <laughs>
3: I'll just very quickly say about the Sylvia Plath song that's, uh, Sylvia Plath poem called Morning Song that's interesting in relation to the earlier questions, is that uh, it's actually a poem that was published posthumously and it is about a kind of mourning that a mother feels after giving birth.
2: Could you say something about uh, Betty Goodwin's work
1: in relationship to the other two artists that are in the show? Agnes Martin, Agnes mm-hmm. Martin, and, uh, and Eva Hesse. Um, you know, I I think this exhibition is is unusual. Like, it's not it's not again the first thing that would come to mind when thinking about Betty Goodwin. So the fact that she's been put in this particular context. You know, when I when I f- was first asked to speak about this was really when I, I found out about the exhibition. So my first my first thought was, oh, that's really interesting. And you know, somebody like Agnes Martin uh, working in a completely abstract vein, if you like, but her paintings always have titles that refer to nature, so this kind of relationship to the figurative. So something like a painting at the National Gallery is called White Flower. Um, what are the names of the works here? They've got. They've got do you remember? So it alludes to, to, to called the Islands, I believe, the name of the work here. So again, uh, relating to to something something real, if you like, a kind of another kind of landscape, um, and. Eva Hesse uh, working in a very minimalist way, but it seems to almost be if you if you like their two kind of polar ends of the show, Betty Goodwin and Agnes Martin both both Canadians, which is also intriguing um, to see to see them together um, Artists who have very different kinds of careers, and then in the middle, somebody like Eva Hess, who's working with uh, material in a very bodily way, but um, you know, working uh, in the period of minimalism or kind of post-minimalism, uh, working across media, so using drawing, uh, sculpture, whatever she needed to do to, to kind of make these objects. I just think it's a kind of it's it's a new way of looking, a new kind of context. Anytime you you bring artists together, you're enunciating how they make, how they think in a a new way. And I I, I think it's like, you know, both artists, Agnes, who you think about Agnes, she's somebody who became well-known late in life. She worked very hard. in isolation for a long period of time and really didn't come into public view until she was much older. So there's a parallel uh, there with Betty's life that's really nice. Hessa died when she was quite young, but had, I I believe, a kind of deep interest in the body, which is something that she shares with Goodwin. So there there are kind of crossovers like that. But also this show um, is very much about the kind of working processes, and it makes visible uh, the kinds of experiments that the artists are, are, are engaged in. So in the AGO show, you can see uh, the copper printing plates, I believe, uh, for some of the parcel etchings and some of the, the etchings themselves. So you get a sense of how she's actually making these things. I think, um, I think with, with, print, with printmaking, printmaking is an incredibly complex process. And I think until you actually go into an artist's studio where lithographs or etchings or embossed, works are made, you do, really don't get a sense of how these things happen. So I think, I think the, the AGO does a really good job in opening that up. And I think there's some video in the room as well, is that correct? Yeah, so to give you a kind of view onto that, um, you see the kinds of experiments Hesse was engaged in in her studio. And again, with, with Agnes Martin, one of the things I love about her works is that... Uh, whenever you look at one of her paintings, um, you, could, you, always, you can always see how it's made. And there's this, this graphite line that always appears. So she's, she uses a ruler that's about 12 inches long, but her canvas is about this big. So she's got to draw the line, move the ruler along, continue the line, and there's always these funny little join moments, and you really get the sense of an artist working in front of a canvas. So I don't know, does that answer, answer your question? I've sort of attempted to move through various... I'm not not the curator of the show, so I'm sure they might have had some other intentions, but those are things that I pick up as a viewer.
2: Any final questions? Oh, there's one at the back. The other curator. Okay. Well, I didn't
0: want to take up time with a kind of non Goodwin question, Um, if there were other people burning to ask questions about Goodwin. But I was really interested, Kitty, in what you said about um, Aurora Borealis being the last great Canadian group show. (laughs) Um, And and I'm not asking this, and I'm not challenging that in any way. I um, would like... uh, You know, you've also spoken quite eloquently about um, the juxtaposition of artists bringing new things to light about an artist. So I, I wonder... Um, you know, what was brought to light about Goodwin or any of the other artists in Aurora Borealis for you, so and um, also why you think it's so difficult to put together a good group show, and is it particularly group shows so of Canadian w- artists? or
1: really? So why it's the last great Canadian art exhibition? Is that really your question?
0: Well, you had said that Aurora Borealis was, so I wanted, I'm just sort of wondering what was great about that show. What was
1: great about that show? Was and that what's so hard ha- yeah.
0: about repeating the, its greatness?
1: Yeah, I think I think the the thing is really that it happened. Um, that would be the first thing. Um, I th- I'd have to go back to my notes, but I think there were over about twenty-five uh, contemporary artists in that show. And again, you can think of people like Betty Goodwin, Irene Whittem, uh, Liz Magor, General Idea, John Massey. Um, the list goes on and on, and it was a big show. And I guess um, you know we. It was a show that was also in a, in a venue that wasn't a museum, so it was outside the traditional places where we see those kinds of shows. Fantastic, beautiful publication, which I showed you the cover of, designed by Angela Graerholtz. Essays, information on the artists. Um, for, for those of you that, that don't know, there's an essay on the um, internet that I wrote, which is about it's about the lack of big group shows about Canadian art. And I, I think that you know while... Some people might think this is a problem that we need to be doing international shows, which I, I wouldn't disagree with. If you look back at the history, the last kind of big group exhibition of Canadian art that happened, happened at the National Gallery. I think it's 1989, 1986, which was the Canadian Biennale. There's, there's something new up now, which I haven't seen and I'll see in a, in a few days, so I'll be able to talk about that. But... Um, there's been no sort of big books written about contemporary Canadian art. And again, there are a few little exceptions in there. And, but I'm t- talking about, let's talk about catalogs and curatorial projects. Um, so for me, it's one of the most dynamic exhibitions that's ever happened. And the work uh, was highly experimental, you know, ranging from video to sculpture to uh, the kind of, you know, pushing uh, the boundaries of drawing that you saw with Betty Goodwin. Um, work about labor, if you like, with Liz McGorre built making those bricks. Um, just... And, and I guess one of the things that's very important about that show is that they were all new works on display. So these were not works that were in any collection or works that were owned by people. They, they were, for the most part, I believe, brand new works that were on exhibit. So you know the curators were taking incredible risks by inviting artists in to do this. Um, and I guess, yeah, it was just expansive and it was something that uh, received a lot of critical attention and a lot of acclaim. And I guess, in a way, you know, there's been a vacuum with respect to these kinds of publications, these kinds of exhibitions uh, on Canadian art. And again, um, you know, I was talking with a friend today about these sorts of things, and uh, she complained that she really is not, you know, she's sort of not so interested in exhibitions of Canadian art. We need to Canadian artists need to be seen in an international context, and I, I think, I think both points of view are completely valid. So, does that does that answer your question? Okay.
2: Do I see any more hands, or is that it? I wouldn't mind if you would just tell us very briefly your books. So the title is so intriguing.
1: What my book's about? Yes. Um, my book is about other people's work. Um, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it comes out of a conference that I organized about two years ago, which was called, um, oh dear, Trade Secrets. And again, it was about, it's about the kind of work that curators do that's, that's not really visible. And I'm, I'm always talking about curators of contemporary art because that, that's how I define myself. And uh, we did a conference called Trade Secrets. And um, there was a whole bit in the conference that was really about the education of curators. So how do you educate curators to make exhibitions? And when the conference, and there was also a bit about collecting art, and there was also a bit about, um, again, I don't know how many of you in the room are familiar with curatorial practice, but I would challenge you to give me the names of six or seven important Canadian curators and maybe the important exhibitions that that they've made. So all over the world, there's actually a kind of, again, a vacuum in terms of thinking about The history of exhibitions. We often think about the history of art, and we can think about iconic works by certain artists, but we don't necessarily know who the people are that are bringing this work to the public and the ways that they're organizing uh, the exhibitions that do bring the works to the public and which ones are important and why they're important. So that's the kind of thought that I'm often engaged with and this book is really a kind of handbook uh, for young curators uh, to actually start to think about um, all the different questions that curating and the education of a curator brings up. Um, Curators of contemporary art are often supposed to kind of they're supposed to accept the new, they're supposed to be open to the new, but they're also supposed to resist old ideas. Often they end up working in museums, and it's a, there's always a tension with the, the kind of the drives of the museum and, and the kind of, resistant of resistance of the curator of contemporary art. So the, these kinds of tensions are brought to the fore. But yeah, it's a, it's a great book. It's brand new. It's fun. <laughs> so I would like to thank
2: you so much for your you. insights. <laughs> I've I've always loved Betty Goodwin but you know somewhat intuitively so thank you for making me think about her a little more as you know curators think educators are often intuitive so <laughs>
1: I I would say that curators are intuitive wow (laughs) the way that I work is is, is very intuitive and I actually one of the things we just ran another conference the next conference which is called um, uh, Our Curators Unprofessional and um, one of the things that we looked at was was intuition versus amateurism but intuition is how can you actually teach intuition how can you teach someone to, to think intuitively. It's, it, you know, there, are no, there are no classes in curatorial schools about thinking intuitively. I think it's actually a very, very important way of thinking.
2: Excellent.
0: Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.